2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to Vancouver Consumer. I'm Sterling Fox, and in just a few moments, we'll be joined by animal rights lawyer Rebecca Bredder to talk about so-called dangerous breeds, strata and residential disputes, veterinary malpractice, the whole spectrum of the law involving animals and their humans. And of course, we'll open up our phone lines as well. In our second hour today, we're off to London for another seminar with Michael Cohen from Branton Wealth, who will help us to understand a little more about Forex, the world's largest trading platform. But first, here are some of the top consumer stories we're following this week. And it's been a rough week for Twitter. Twitter, rather, Shares of Twitter fell by nearly 21% on Thursday, set to erase roughly half the stock's gains for the whole year. Revenue for the third quarter was only up 9%, coming in well below investors' expectations. Twitter blamed several bugs in its advertising products, and slower than demand uh, for advertising, over this past summer. It also forecasts revenue to remain much weaker than it originally anticipated for the remainder of the year because of those advertising problems. Profit also fell to 37 million which is a lot lower than the 700 million it reported for the same period a year ago. But the platform is still attracting users. Twitter added 6 million users since the last quarter and 21 million users compared to the same period a year ago. Analysts do say though the momentum from the last several quarters has Cooled. Nissan announced just yesterday it's discontinuing the budget hatchback and Canadian racing star, the Micra, at the end of this year. The car, which has been around since 2014, is built in in Mexico and production completely stops in December. Nissan will switch focus to lower price models like the Sentra and Kicks. Nissan says it does have enough stock to hold the company over until the end of 2020, however. So if you still want to get your hands on one of those little cars, you have time the problem is the cost of just over ten thousand dollars it can't be maintained going forward a next year version of the Micra would cost more and the price would have to go up so nissan decided to just cut out the model period for canada but as for the canada only nissan cup racing series nissan says don't worry the 2020 season will be completely consistent with previous years fun little cars with a great warranty Last year we told you about the latest phone scam involving crooks posing as Canada Revenue Agents looking to scare people into paying so-called debts with Bitcoin or gift cards. Well, this week we have a warning from the Vancouver Poppy Fund about yet another phone scam. This time the bad guys are calling people pretending to be from the Royal Canadian Legion Poppy Campaign, asking for donations by credit card and then taking down the information. Well, the real poppy campaign says they never, repeat, never solicit donations this way. They go on to say anyone who wants to donate to the poppy fund should be careful and make sure you're donating directly. Quote, the best and safest way is through your local Royal Canadian Legion. There'll be lots of veterans. There's one in the lobby of our building right now today and lots of cadets out on the streets with the poppy trays. You get the poppy from them. You put the money in the little box and that way, you know, the money will get to where it's supposed to go. They also say fake poppy boxes are already showing up in Alberta, too, so be extra careful. We had problems with that in Nanaimo last year. There are just two employees, and volunteers make the difference, as you might imagine, as the Vancouver Poppy Fund distributes an estimated 400,000 poppies around Metro Vancouver every year. The money it raises first covers costs, of course, and then helps to take care of veterans whose needs aren't covered by health insurance or Veterans Affairs. Later this year, local consumers will be able to order marijuana, products anytime when a new delivery app launches in Winnipeg. The founders of the company offering the platform said it will be like using any of the popular food delivery services except, well, this one's for cannabis. From the consumer perspective, the easiest way to put it is it's like skip the dishes or Uber Eats for cannabis, says the president and co-founder of a company called Super Anytime. What we're trying to do is improve accessibility and consumers' choice of cannabis so we can use this to highlight the benefits to current the black market, and to put consumer dollars back into legitimate channels. Super Anytime's co-founders are also co-founders of an outfit called Boozer, which is an alcohol delivery service based in Toronto. It's been up and running for a couple of years and has recently expanded here to Vancouver. The pair is hoping to build on the success of Boozer with their cannabis delivery business, and they hope to have the service up and running in November or December. They're in Winnipeg to start because Manitoba laws allow for this service, and Ontario's Don't yet. They have vetted their business plan with the Manitoba government. There are no issues with noncompliance. And so it begins. It is a beautiful afternoon on the west coast of Canada for a change. And we welcome that change vigorously. Sterling Fox in studio here at CKNW, joined by British Columbia's first... Animal rights lawyer. A real pleasure to welcome Rebecca Bredder to Vancouver Consumer. Hello.
1: Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well,
2: it's a pleasure to have you with us. And when did you become BC's first animal rights lawyer? How long oh, have you been practicing?
1: I've been practicing since 2005. And let me just say there there have been other lawyers who have done some animal law work, uh, but I'm the first one to have such a full time. This is literally... All I do, right, and all I've been doing for a long time, and and I'm so excited to get into what that actually means, what what kind of work and what kind of files that I deal with, and the issues. I mean, I people. Would be so I, – I could tell you that generally the, this line of work is, uh, is hard, mm-hmm. not just because of the legal aspect of it, but emotionally for, for everyone involved. But anyway, no, I think you, we'll get into and, that.
2: And you said a lot of people who come to you as clients with the con- situations, whether it's a dispute or whatever the matter is, typically they're coming to you as an animal rights lawyer because there, there's, a, there's a spot of trouble going on, and it's not generally about money. It's more about principle.
1: Right, exactly. I know, Sterling, when when you and I were just talking off air, uh, I am yet to have a client who comes to me and says, I want to sue or go after this person or entity for the money. Right. No one. and And I could, I mean, I could bet anything on this, that I'm so right on this, is that no one comes to me because of the money. They come to me because of the principle behind sure. it, because they're upset. There's a lot of emotions involved. And and I'm talking about regardless of whether it's an individual, so someone who has a dog or a cat or who's going through some issues or an organization that is seeing some major wrong out there and that wants to to get justice for animals.
2: Oh, so in some cases, then it might be an animal conservation group that retains your services. And for a specific uh, case.
1: Right, exactly. An animal protection organization. And and right now, perfect example, top of mind, is the Canadian Horse Defense Coalition. And I'm going to give them a huge shout out. Of course, they're a client of mine. Um, and so there's a little bit of bias there. But even before they were a client of mine, um, the work that they have done uh, and are still doing is incredible. Now, they're- hang on. Just, just before you explain sure, the story, sure. I need
2: to tell my listeners that they need to pay attention. I just learned about this about 15 minutes ago, and I was floored absolutely mm-hmm. floored. I had no idea that this even exists. You're you're representing the Canadian Horse Transportation Association.
1: Defense Coalition. Uh, okay.
2: okay. <laughs> it's oh.
1: a mouthful. <laughs> That's Canadian right. Canadian Horse Defense Coalition. In,
2: in a court case, in federal court, so it's, 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 it's the outcome will affect the entire country. The case begins, your court case begins this coming week and present opening arguments and all of that sort of thing. But the essence of the case is dealing with Canadian horse Horses being exported to Asia for meat.
1: Yes. So give
2: us some details, please. Yes. I was stunned, oh. friends. Just stunned. Listen to this.
1: Oh, yeah. I, and, and to be honest, I mean, I've been in the animal rights and protection movement since I was a little girl growing up in, in Montreal. And I knew that Canada uh, has been slaughtering horses here w- within our borders. The United States, they don't do that. It's not banned officially, but they don't. They don't Uh, fund the inspections of slaughterhouses for Mm -hmm. horses, so they can't slaughter horses there. So they ship them up to here, to Canada and to Mexico. So we slaughter horses here for meat. um, But what I didn't realize, and the extent of what we do here in Canada, is that we also export live horses to Japan and what we recently learned to South Korea to be slaughtered for sushi uh, and or meat, mainly mm-hmm. for sushi, because sushi is considered, uh, horse sushi is considered a delicacy in Japan. Okay. And I'll take your
2: word for that.
1: Uh, yes, yes, please do. <laughs> I and mean, I didn't realize either to tell you the truth, but, sure. um, but it's unbelievable because really the essence of this lawsuit, what we're telling, so first of all, let me just start off. The Canadian Horse Defense Coalition is not doing this for the money, right? just like I said at the beginning. right? Yeah, They're doing this because there's something terribly wrong when the legislature, is so clear about what is allowed to happen and the legislation is not being followed. Okay. So more specifically, what's happening is that our current transportation laws require that horses over 14 hands in height, which basically is a horse bigger than a pony, sure. um, they have to be separated or segregated upon transport. And the tops of their heads cannot touch the tops of the crates. And basically, the the intent there is to protect the horses uh, and, and animals um, from injury during transport. Sure. And what are we seeing? We're seeing and have been seeing for the last several years at least since when the Canadian Horse Defense Coalition started looking into this, is that horses over 14 hands in height are not being separated. They're and being- is,
2: is the excuse uh, currently that, well, we're, we're not in Canada anymore, we're out over international waters, Canadian law no longer applies, and particularly to the destination where these uh, creatures are being taken, the, there are, there are no such laws
1: no uh, what what they're saying essentially what the government is saying essentially is that no, um they're they're first of all admitting that they're cramming horses into these small crates. Um, contrary to the very specific provision that says you're not allowed doing that. But what the government essentially is arguing is that uh, the reason why they're doing that is because they care about animals. Mm. And um, and they want horses that are compatible with other horses to travel together in order to reduce the stress during travel time. Okay. Th- that's kind of the gist of it. There's more. Okay. But
2: uh, this is going to be a long trial? By the sounds of things, it uh, could no, have it's, some it's legs. No, it's a hearing.
1: It's a hearing. So it's it, it's a judicial. Uh, I don't want to get into the technicalities sure. of it, but the, but the gist of it is it's a judicial review, which is so it's not a trial with witnesses and all of that. Okay, uh, what we're doing is we're asking the court to review the what we say is the ongoing unlawful conduct of the Canadian Food Inspection Agency over the last several years.
2: And if they find in your favor, then it becomes a trial.
1: No, then if they find in our favor hopefully, then that means that because what we're asking for the court is A, to say that the way the government has been interpreting the legislation has been wrong and B, we're asking the court to uh, order the government to follow the legislation right. and to segregate the horses. It's your law.
2: Follow it, for crying right. out loud.
1: Right. Exactly.
2: In addition to this uh, landmark case that is clearly preoccupying your time at the moment... What this is ca- why
1: I look so tired. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you look terrific. What, uh, what 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 do you spend most of your time on? In terms of business that comes to Bredder Law in Gastown, what is what is the majority of, 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 of the cases about?
1: Thank you so much for asking. It, it really depends on... Uh, on what people come to me for. So my workload is divided between representing individuals, so people with private issues such as defending their dogs or if people have uh, a veterinarian malpractice uh suit mm-hmm. potentially. So if if they took their animal to a veterinarian and the veterinarian did something horribly wrong, they want to know what they could do about that. Um, strata issues. I was going to,
2: that was, that was my next question. What about living in a tight quarters where your home is not your castle to begin with and the people next door have a yappy bloody dog that never shuts up? You, know, <laughs> you get those, I'm sure.
1: I, well, um, not as much those because let me just, uh, and I should have said this at the very beginning, the only cases I take on are those where I feel I could either help an animal or animals directly, or where I feel that I could advance the state of animal law or the interests of animals under the law. So if someone calls me about the yappy next
2: door dog, is not uh, your not your turn. No,
1: no, I would actually probably be defending the yappy dog. Uh, owners, um, and and so for anyone listening, if if let's say they had a dog bite, and I don't deal with a lot of dog bite issues, but um, but if someone calls me and they're like, "This dog bit me," I want that dog put down. That those are not the types of cases I take. I actually would defend the dog who allegedly allegedly bit. Um, so or by the same token, what if the
2: dog actually it wasn't allegedly at all? What if the dog actually bit? So the if, person? if a
1: dog actually bit, I would defend those people, too. And I could tell you also the same as defending dogs. I defend dogs who have been labeled as aggressive or labeled as dangerous. So I, I certainly I, I never take on the other side ever. Okay. So if uh, a, a dog that has already been labeled as aggressive caused injury to another dog or person, uh, I would still defend the dog that has been labeled as aggressive. And this, I could just almost hear people like just yelling at the radio, like, how can you be defending bad dogs? And I could, again, easily say that none of the dogs, I'm also picky with my cases, mm. but none of the dogs that I have ever represented are inherently bad bad or vicious or aggressive. It's so easy to judge without knowing the full story.
2: Hey, no yelling at the radio, okay? If you want (laughs) to yell, or please don't yell. We'd appreciate it if you didn't, but if you want to join the conversation, uh, Ben and Andrew, just open up the phone line. So, 604-280-9898. You are most welcome to jump in. 604-280- 9898. You keep opening these doors for me. Thank you so much. You talked about so-called dangerous breeds. I mentioned that in my opening remarks this afternoon. Uh, There. are are jurisdictions, your own hometown of Montreal being one of them, where pit bulls, for example, have been declared to be dangerous by the municipal authorities. And if I'm not mistaken, Rebecca, correct me if I'm wrong, and I know you will, uh, in, in some cases, those dogs in public must be muzzled.
1: Yes, that's true. So in some jurisdictions, although Montreal is very smart now because they, uh, they're they repealing it, and, and actually, you know what, I, I need to double-check this, they may have already repealed this. Um in jurisdictions where there are restrictions on certain breeds, such as uh, quote pit bulls or Rottweilers or favorites, yeah. right? Rottweilers. Uh, in those jurisdictions, almost always the dog has to be leashed and the usually up to two and a half meters or no longer than two and a half meters long. Right. They have to be muzzled, um, and there are all sorts of other conditions, like the person's personal property. Um, I mean, their like house has to be gated a certain way or fenced a certain way, and very strict restrictions. And I could tell you, just spoiler alert, and you probably already guessed it, but I am so not in favor of these types of laws and regulations because, quite frankly, they do nothing for public safety, they don't, and I, I, I would love. I, I'm obviously very opinionated about this. Well, and 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 I do appreciate that's my that job. passion,
2: Rebecca. But you know, you, you would have to at least come to, come to terms with the fact that a muzzle, while well, it may not do much psychologically for those who are afraid of said dogs, it at least allows for a little breathing space because the dog's muzzled. He can't bite my kneecap
1: off. You know what, actually? No, the psychology behind that, not that I'm a psychologist or profess to be, but um, when you see a dog with a muzzle, isn't your first reaction, ooh, that dog must be dangerous. That's right, of course. So your instinct is to actually not feel comfortable or to feel more relaxed and, oh, I could go pet this dog where this dog won't do anything to me. Your instinct is actually the complete opposite. Yeah, you and, see a dog
2: with a muzzle, you're not going to go anywhere near the Exactly,
1: dog. And, let, and let me also just say that some people muzzle their dogs not because they're vicious, but because their dog eats everything in sight. Yes, that's true. And so they muzzle the dog just to prevent, you know, <laughs> the, really the four, big veterinary bills.
2: Carburetor <laughs> type dog. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I, yes, I know a few exactly. Of yeah.
1: Exactly. But the the laws that we have here in British Columbia um how much time do we have oh we should
2: we're gonna have to break for the news here but, <laughs> okay uh, very quickly though it, you're saying bc law is different from quebec law to begin with right it,
1: it is but there are still restrictions uh, across british columbia that have these types of laws like burnaby is a perfect example where pit bulls are considered a restricted breed so people who have dogs that are pit bulls have to muzzle them and all that but that's a whole other question like what on earth is a pit bull?
2: Well, we got lots of people who want to join the conversation. 604-280-9898. Rebecca Brenner, BC's first animal rights lawyer in the studio to take your calls after the news on Vancouver Consumer. Welcome back to the program this glorious Saturday afternoon. I suppose the only down part of it is it's the last Saturday of October already. Good grief. At Sterling Fox in studio with Rebecca Bredder, who is an animal rights lawyer, uh, BC's first. There are more of them now, but uh, you were a pioneer back in your early days of practice, Rebecca. We were talking about the sort of work that crosses your desk and all the different types of cases. And your bottom line is that very few people go to an animal rights lawyer looking for dough. It's more satisfaction. It's more an issue of principle.
1: That's right. It's never about the money. It's always about the principle and getting justice for the animals.
2: All right, let's uh, take some calls. let get some people with us. We opened up the phone lines eons ago, 604-280-9898, and we have people who have been with us for more than a few minutes, beginning on Vancouver Island with Bonita.
3: Oh, thank you for taking my call. I You're love welcome. your show. It's wonderful. Thank you. Rebe- Rebecca, I, you guys, I, tu- I tuned in a little bit late, so maybe these Questions have already been addressed. Could I get your opinion, please, on the group PETA and also your personal opinion on shock collars? Oh. Two, Thank you, all hang up
2: now. Oh, okay, we'll send you back to your radio, Bonita. Thank you yep. for that. Two very, very different items, Rebecca.
1: <laughs> Thank you for the call, Bonita. Very, two very good questions. Uh, let me start with the slightly shorter answer about shock collars. My opinion on shock collars is that they are absolutely terrible. There is never a reason to use them. Uh, that's, it's old school thinking uh, now, so anyone who uses them, I strongly encourage you to stop using them while they may have a very short-term effect to... Uh, startle the dog and to stop the dog from doing whatever. Usually, you don't.
2: barking is is one of the reasons people put shock collars. You can't Bar- shut the bloody dog up.
1: Barking or just controlling them uh, during walks. So if they ha- if they're a reactive dog and react to other yeah, dogs sure. approaching them, and they
2: freak out and right, all. Right. Yeah, right,
1: right. So then people put a shock collar. But what we've seen um, over the last at least decade is that f- for dogs who have been trained with shock collars they actually cause long-term damage to the behavior of the dog because what the dog learns is something negative. They associate whatever they are training um, for with something negative. So let's say if they see another dog, uh, then the shock collar goes off. They associate seeing other dogs with being shocked and pain. Mm. And what, the de- what that essentially does is that actually causes long-term aggression to start causing and stirring up in the dog. So I am not a fan of shock collars at all. Um, and this isn't just me. I mean, I'm a lawyer. I'm not an animal behaviorist, but... I have worked with very good um, and respected animal behaviorists, and I'm going to give a shout out to Dr. Rebecca Ledger. She is uh, one of the ones I work with very often, and I've learned from her um, a, a lot of what I'm saying now. So that's in regards to shock holidays. And the
2: other half of the question was about PETA.
1: PETA was the other question. That's a great question. Um, My perspective on this is I'm I'm personally a fan of PETA. I think the work that they do is very important. And while it could be considered radical or kind of shocking um, for some, uh, I'm a huge fan because they bring animal protection issues to the spotlight. Where I get in trouble... Um, With this type of opinion is that PETA and this is within the animal rights and animal protection movement as well, is that because PETA uses naked women, quite frankly, in in their um, in their campaigns. Uh, I get, I and those who hold similar opinions about PETA get chastised about it because they're like, well, how can you call yourself a feminist or call yourself even an animal rights person if you're denigrating women with these ads? My response to that is that these women who, um, I I definitely see that point and I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. I, I totally do. But when I weigh that with the atrocities that go on every single day to animals and if that's what's going if sex is what it's going to take to sell the idea to people that treating animals in a in a cruel way is wrong then i'm in favor of it that's the
0: bottom line
2: thanks for your call and thanks for your patience too bonita from the island as we come back into vancouver kevin is up next kevin you've been waiting a while too we appreciate that good afternoon
0: oh hey good afternoon um so i was just curious about the um the muzzling of of dogs um so i i've had a you know bad experience and um uh, so you were mentioning that if if a dog is muzzled that's actually a bad thing um would it be breed specific or is it just that no dogs uh if they're say violent should be should be muzzled like I, i wasn't quite sure um, what your take was on that?
1: Oh yes, no, no, sorry. Let me clarify that. Um, no, I, I'm not saying that uh, muzzling a dog uh, generally is a bad thing. First of all, there can be a lot of reasons why people muzzle a dog, other than aggression. The main one being, you know, if a dog is eats everything in sight, <laughs> so right. the the dog guardian wants to muzzle the dog to yep. prevent him or her from eating whatever it is. No, what what I the context of that comment was that I don't think that certain Uh, dogs just because of their breeds without any kind of behavioral problem in the past should be muzzled. I don't think that just because of a breed, like let's say a pit bull, that's a a very common example.
2: It's the most common, isn't it?
1: Right, right. Um, I don't think that a pit bull, a so-called pit bull, um, should be muzzled just because the dog uh, is a pit bull.
0: Now, here's a question, just a side note. What about... um uh in terms of breeds, I know certain breeds have more, um, they're, they're considered more aggressive, considered more violent. Um, and I guess there's been some studies that have kind of come out and shown that. Is, is it more an upbringing thing or is it more a genetic thing in your opinion? I'm, I'm just curious. This is a great conversation.
1: Sure. Uh, so sorry. The question is.
0: Um, so, would you view um, like a violent dog? Do you think it's more upbringing, or do you think it's more genetics? Um, it, it, because oh, this is yes. obviously the thing that comes up. Everyone says, "Oh, uh, pit bull, dangerous." Uh, uh, right. Exactly,
2: and that's a genetic <laughs> argument, isn't it, Kevin?
0: Yeah, yeah, and, exactly. And, and, I mean, there have and been Rebecca disagrees have with up.
2: the genetic argument,
1: right? I think, uh, Kevin, I think that's an excellent question, and th- and thank you for raising that. Um, the short answer is that if a dog is violent, it has nothing to do with genetics. It has everything right. to do with that particular dog. And there could be a number of reasons why that particular dog is uh, is acting aggressively. One of the reasons, like one of the first things, if not the first thing, uh, I do in my cases where uh, where I get to defend the dog is we take the dog to a veterinarian or have the veterinarian come to the pound if the dog has been seized to assess the dog whether there are any physical reasons why the dog is acting the way he or she has. And very often we find that there is a medical reason that has been undiagnosed um, or perhaps the dog is on too high of a protein diet and little things like just reducing the type of food that the dog eats uh, to switch the dog from beef or chicken to, to salmon, or to even, dare I say, you know, vegan food, um, to reduce the amount of protein that the dog is getting and that reduces the aggression. So the short answer is that uh, a a violent dog or uh, as as you described the dog uh, has nothing to do with genetics and it really has everything to do with just that particular dog and various factors that may have led to that dog being aggressive.
2: Kevin, thanks for the call. Uh, Rebecca, earlier, pardon me, you mentioned um, this whole business of uh, veterinary malpractice. Let me take a couple of seconds, and I am not the only person in British Columbia that this has happened to. This goes back several years now. We had rescued a dog, and in those days, the dogs didn't necessarily arrive spayed or neutered, but you had to make a commitment to have them spayed or neutered as a condition of the rescue. So we rescued this gorgeous Malamute. She was just a beautiful dog, fully grown, but quite young and unspayed. So, fine, off we go to the vet and uh, drop her off and we'll pick her up tomorrow and it's a spaying. We get a call about five or six hours later. She didn't make it. She died on the operating to A spaying operation. I was furious. My wife was just crushed. What rights did we, the pet owners, in this particular case, have, if any, to go after that vet?
1: Uh, First of all, I'm so sorry that you went through that. I, I, I think it's absolutely terrible that... And it does eat, happen. This is it,
2: not a, a rare
1: case. No, it's not. Unfortunately, it's so not. So
2: what do we have? What, what, what recourse do we have?
1: Let me just let me just start by saying that uh, I am not out there to get veterinarians. Right. And, and most veterinarians are actually very good. And the reason why they went into this profession is to actually help animals. So the majority of veterinarians don't mean to hurt someone's animal. Right. There are some veterinarians out there who are very bad and have a history of being very bad, and there are those veterinarians also who are really good but made a terrible mistake. Sure, and uh, and I kind of get a combination of those two veterinarians with histories and veterinarians who are actually generally quite good but have made a mistake. The rights that people have is they're they're basically twofold, and again. When people come to me for these issues, they never come to me because they want yeah. their money back. Uh, it wasn't about the money.
2: No, they're no. not at all.
1: Of course not. It's about they feel terrible for having lost their, in some cases and in in a lot of cases, I can say their most beloved family member, yeah, yeah. and more so than other, you know, human family members. So people are very upset. The rights that people have is twofold. One is either to pursue the veterinarian civilly, which means by way of lawsuit. It's not. Like you have to jump into court right away, right. but it's demanding money. Even though I know it's not about the money, but unfortunately, the way our legal system works is that if there's a wrongdoing, if you're if you're alleging negligence, the way the court system awards uh, a recognizes win
2: in that, it, right? Is it is a monetary award? Exactly, right, yeah.
1: exactly. And and that does hurt the the wrongdoers, so to speak, because they realize that okay, maybe they need to be more careful in the future. Um, the other option that people have, and they're not mutually exclusive, in other words, you could do both at the same time, is to lodge a complaint with the British Columbia uh, College of Veterinarians. Oh, they're and
2: regulatory people, right.
1: They're the regulatory yeah. people, and yeah. they're the ones, so that has actually nothing to do with, with money at all. You yeah. don't get any type of award if you're successful, and, and it's not really that the dog owner is successful, it's just that if they lodge a complaint and the college agrees with the dog owner that there has been some wrongdoing, then the outcome of that is that the veterinarian can be disciplined, Worst-case scenario, the license revoked. I've actually never had a case where the license has been revoked, and that's actually very, very rare in general that that happens. But usually the college does – the best-case scenario, what I've seen is that the college – tells a veterinarian that they have to take further lessons, further, further education, and they have to pay some kind of penalty to the college for investigation.
2: Interesting stuff. Uh, not all the time in the world left here, and I want to jump around a little bit because I wanted to ask you about pet custody. I'm looking at your website. By the way, Rebecca's company is Bread or Law, uh, and uh, the website conveniently is brederlaw.com. <laughs> and on the on the website homepage are all sorts of different categories of animal law that you address, including pet Custody. Now we have a family lawyer, Stuart Zimmer, Zuckerman, who comes on the program quite regularly, and and uh, takes calls about you know custody issues. And and at one point we've had a call about a dog. And Stuart told Ben and me off air, you would be stunned at how frequently animal custody matters become a really h- serious part of family breakups and so on. How do you handle pet custody matters in in that context?
1: Uh, uh, usually the pet ownership disputes I get um, and custody disputes. They're not in uh, the divorce uh, context. They're in the context of a couple has lived together for a while, usually less than two years, sometimes more than two years, which would technically make them fall under the Family Law Act, but we we haven't dealt with them under the Family Law Act. Or roommates who have lived together, and one roommate abandons a dog with the other roommate, and a couple months later comes back and is like, hey, I want my dog back. Ah. But really abandon the dog. So I deal with uh, with ownership disputes over dogs. Um, Usually dogs, but cats or or any other domestic animal for that matter. Um, And and I'm very proud to say that the law in BC is actually a little bit different when it comes to that. And, And I'm proud because some of my cases have set precedent in this, which is that courts not only consider the black and white things, so to speak, like things that you could prove, who paid for the dog, yeah. who who pays for the veterinarian, mm-hmm. who licensed the dog, and things like that. But that courts also recognize that we have to consider the best interest of the animal. So is it better for, uh, I say dog, because usually it, it, it is a dog in question, um, is it better for the dog to live with person X or with person Y? Sure. And, and that, that, that I think is huge because what I'm seeing, it's, it's a reflection of how Canadian law is going when it comes to animals generally. And that's that courts recognize that animals are technically property. We all know that. But we are seeing judges starting to treat animals differently than a chair. Or you know another piece of furniture. So, British
2: Columbia family law has evolved to the point where the interests of the child are con- are always paramount. You can see some movement in that regard to animal interests as well. The welfare of the creature involved is more important than the humans.
1: Exactly, it is technically outside of the family law act and family law legal issues but so the cases i deal with are when that doesn't arise it's when couples are together and they're not fighting over you know the rest of the assets in the family yeah, I forgot
2: about the roommate scenario. That happens, doesn't oh, it? Oh, You room yeah. for a few years or a couple of months or whatever, you adopt a dog, oh, we're getting a dog, and then you leave. And then, oh, I miss the dog, you've gone on, You and two, three months later you come, I want my dog back, it's not
1: your dog. <laughs> right. No, I know, or a rescue organization. I, I, um, I represented a rescue organization that helped to adopt a dog out, and it was a matter of dealing with that, and it was a rescue that... That should, or the new dog owner should get the dog as opposed to the previous one.
2: So just in case, friends, you were unaware of the fact that there are lawyers in Metro Vancouver who look after matters pertaining to animals, now you do. And it's been a pleasure (laughs) to introduce you to British Columbia's first animal rights lawyer, Rebecca Breder, in town, in studio. Her last name, by the way, is spelled B-R-E-D-E-R. And it's not breeder. That would be too (laughs) cute. It's Rebecca Breder. And the website is brederlaw.com. Thank you, Rebecca. Please come back and see Us again.
1: Thank you very much. I certainly will.
2: And good luck with your cor- case in federal court.
1: Thank you very much.
2: And once again, our thanks to animal rights lawyer Rebecca Bretter for joining us today. Thanks for your calls as well. Coming up in our next hour, we're off to London for another session on Forex, the world's largest trading platform. Time now for Duly Noted. And this time, our producer Ben Dooley looks at
3: electric vehicle charging etiquette. Thanks, Sterling. Lack of etiquette is leading to growing conflict at electric car charging stations. A survey conducted by BC Hydro found that almost a quarter of electric vehicle drivers have argued with a fellow driver at a public charging station. 24% said they have experienced extreme frustration when other drivers use public chargers to fully charge their vehicle. Susie, leader of BC Hydro, said while the province's more than 1,700 public chargers are a useful resource, EV drivers should make home charging a priority. That's why the utility offers rebates on home chargers of up to $350, she says, in conjunction with the province's own $350 rebate.
0: There's no actual rule book on etiquette, right? So every experience was something new. There's no fisticuffs, but it's definitely a lot of awkward situations.
3: BC Hydro offers the following tips for owners of electric vehicles. Take only what is needed and limit your charging to a maximum of around 30 to 40 minutes. Avoid parking at an EV charging stall if not charging or waiting to charge. Use the PlugShare app to let others know when a charger will be available. Do not unplug others unless there is a note on the vehicle or on PlugShare that gives permission to do so. I'm Ben Julie, and that's duly noted. Time
2: for a couple more consumer quickies before the news, and thank you, Ben. BC's housing slowdown may be bottoming out, according to a new housing market outlook by Canada Mortgage and Housing. Sales and prices in BC will begin to stabilize next year before accelerating in 2021. CMHC says favorable economic and demographic conditions in the province will drive new housing starts, which it says will be relatively strong growth growth rather compared to other regions. As far as sales go, CMHC HC projecting BC will also see stronger growth combined compared rather to other parts of Canada and along with an uptick in sales CMHC is forecasting prices will begin to climb again next year the agency protects, projects rather mortgage rates to climb from about 5.2 percent this year to 5.6 percent by 2021 and it says risks remain for the market including global trade tensions and high household debt which could be vulnerable to interest rate hikes John Carl and awesome. we'll have lots more to say about this story next Saturday. Next week the BCD Liquor Distribution Branch will be selling a $78,000 decanter of Macallan Genesis 72-year-old Scotch the oldest whiskey ever released by Macallan, one of only 600 decanters of the stuff released worldwide the bottle will go on sale on Halloween at 8 o'clock in the evening at the liquor store at 39th and Camby all part of their annual premium spirits release at that point, two other Macallan products, a 30-year-old Sherry Oak for only forty three fifty. That's four thousand three hundred fifty dollars. Oh, and for the cheapies who just can't go into. Four figures. A $600 McCarlin Exceptional Single Cast will also be on sale. More the next day, November 1st, at Park Royal, where a Beaumont 50 year old release will be purchased for, well, $45,000. It's all coming up at BCLC Stores Select Stores this coming week. That is our program for this hour, produced by Ben Dooley with Andrew Ferreira. Lots more after the news. Stay with us right here on CKNW.
1: The proceeding was a paid commercial program.